I have a couple of announcements for you. Uh, obviously, uh, we have had a bit of a new face on the stage this morning. Uh, Josh and Julie Cavallo and their kids have been with us all week, candidating, uh, us getting to know them and them getting to know us. And this morning, we have the privilege of having Josh lead us in, in worship. And uh, this afternoon, uh, immediately following the second service at 1230, uh, we have a Q&A time uh, where you can uh, ask Josh and Julie some questions, get to know them better. Uh, and, uh, and I hope you'll take advantage of that uh, if you haven't already or even if you have already. Uh, there is a light lunch provided, and I'm going to underscore the word light. Uh, the point is to uh, take the edge off so you don't all get hangry, and uh, it's not to fill you. It's just to take the edge off. Uh, and there is no child care provided. We had a child care question and answer on Tuesday night, or we had, a, we had child care provided for the Tuesday night Q&A, so that won't be available this time. Uh, but uh, I hope uh, you'll take advantage of that. And then secondly, we do have a special business meeting called uh, for uh, Wednesday, uh, this upcoming Wednesday, uh, at 7 o'clock, uh, to uh, consider the call uh, of Josh and Julie to come and serve here at the church, for Josh to ser- serve as the pastor of worship and connections. So those are things you need to know. Uh, the information's there in your bulletin, and I hope you'll consider that. Um, and right now, it is my privilege to take us before the Lord in prayer. Uh, we've already been in his presence together this morning. And We get to focus our hearts now on what he has for the rest of the time. So let's do that. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you confidently. And if it weren't for Jesus, we'd have no way to approach you. And we know that. But because of your Savior, the one you've sent to die for our sins, we come right before you as your kids with rights and privileges and status not in our own merits, but in the merits of Christ. Uh, We know our place with you. God, help us to know increasingly what our position is with you. I pray, Lord, as we study your word this morning, that we would have even greater clarity of your grace in our lives and the goodness of what it means to belong to you. Uh, Teach us now from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians We're in chapter 1, and we're taking on the first nine verses uh, of the book in our series, Messy Christianity. Um, I think it is probably a pretty universal human tendency to overlook uh, the good things uh, and the abundance of good things in our lives, or to take them for granted, uh, if you will. Uh, Easy to be preoccupied and fixated upon those things which are not as we would have them to be. Uh, instead of seeing the goodness of things as, as they are. Uh, you can imagine this even in your own homes, right? In our home, we have, uh, we have a couple of things that really bother me. One is that we have this transition strip between some tile in our entryway and a wood floor that's a little bit raised. And this transition strip is forever failing and getting kicked and broken. And I've tried to fix it many, many times. And I've kind of just a little bit given up and left it in the status of not right, then it bothers me. Uh, And I've got other things around the home that are not as they ought to be, and it bothers me. And I can sort of fixate on those things, and I can actually forget to praise God that we have a wonderful roof over our head uh, and to be thankful for those things. I think we can all do this in relationships, right? We can have these times of frustration where we wish we had more friends or closer friends than we actually do have. And we can forget to realize that there have been people who are very good friends who have been close to us and faithful to us for a while. 
and we can overlook that. We can do the same in our jobs. Uh, We can say, I wish I had more hours than I do or less hours than I do or more pay for what I do. Or maybe we've been given a project and it's, you know, really not our favorite, but we can forget to rejoice that we're gainfully employed and that we have an opportunity to serve with distinction and glorify God in our labor. Uh, And I think it is the wise person who takes the time to identify and acknowledge the good things in life, and to praise God for them. And this morning as we begin our series in 1 Corinthians titled Messy Christianity, what we're going to find in the outset of this passage is Paul taking some time to acknowledge for the Corinthians and for us the goodness of belonging to God. The inherent goodness of belonging to God. So if you would look with me, verses 1 through 9 of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our, on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Great passage, great opening words. What an encouraging introduction to a letter. I I doubt that any of us write with such beauty and affirmation in the beginning of our own correspondence. And Paul tells us some important things that I want to draw out for you. And the first thing I want to focus on is this, that we have been sanctified and called to be holy. Sanctified is a pretty big word. We don't really use it at the lunch table very often. Uh, But sanctified means set apart. It means set apart for something, set apart for special use. And we actually do this all the time in our everyday lives and in our homes. You have those, and I've said this before, but you have those towels in your house. Those bath towels that are sanctified, right? Uh, You're not allowed to use them. They're for company. They're, they're twice the depth and the fluffiness of the ones you use. The ones you use could draw blood. You know, they're crusty and old. The ones that the guests get to use, you know, pamper them. And so we sanctify those things. We set them apart for special use. We sanctify or set apart our nice silverware, right? So that we don't serve our guests, you know, forks with, you know, bent tines or something like that. We give them the good stuff that's all polished and shiny. And our everyday stuff, you know, is missing half the fork or whatever, Uh, We we use sort of the everyday things. Or we may set apart, guys, especially in your shop or in your garage, you set apart some of your tools to protect them. You have some blades, some lathes, you have some files or some drills or some uh, router bits or, or whatever. And you set them apart and they have a case and they have a place in that case and you keep them there so they'll keep their edge and they'll keep their integrity and keep their performance. You set them apart. And this is what God has done with us. 
He has set us apart for something special. We have been sanctified and called to be holy. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians of their position in Christ. He's reminding them that that they are not only saved, but they are to act out their salvation in holy living. And I don't think it comes as any surprise when I say that, unfortunately, holiness has really gotten a bad rap in our world. You agree? Think about uh, the group of people who really pursued it, the Puritans. When somebody ever references the Puritans, imagine their face and the intonation of their language and the way they reference them, right? Puritanical whatever, right? Holiness has gotten uh, a bad rap for sure, uh, as though Holiness is some awkward, uneasy thing to pursue in life. Uh, But as you can see, the Apostle Paul celebrates their status. You have been sanctified. You've been set apart. And you've been called to live a life of holiness. And he begins his letter celebrating these things and affirming the people with these truths. Sin is absolutely alluring. We all know that. But it's a lie. It never delivers. Maybe for a moment, but even that moment is a lie. The reality is we were not made for sin. We were made for holiness. Sin is a distortion and a foreign contaminant in our lives that degrades and destroys and tears down and invades the shalom of God. The shalom of God is that peace and that wholeness and that goodness and that way of things being as they ought to be. Uh, In his book, uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be by Cornelius Plantinga, and I've referenced that in your notes, uh, he references or he, he describes sin as, in a very memorable way, the vandalism of shalom. The vandalism of shalom. I want to illustrate this for you. This past week, I was uh, asleep late at night in my bed. Uh, It was perfect sleeping conditions, a cool room. I was tired. I was deep in the mattress, deep in my pillow. You know, the down comforter was high on my chest and face. The duvet, and yes, I used the word duvet, was clean and soft. And I was in my cocoon of comfort and shalom, and it was good. And I was awoken to the words, Dad, I just threw up. (laughs) And my shalom had been vandalized. (laughs) You know know how these go, right? You're you're laying there like, no, 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 no. (laughs) And, and, And your mind's thinking, okay, find compassion. Find compassion, where is it? And then other thoughts hit you like, oh, I don't know if this is over yet, right? Or if this is continuing. So then, you know, compassion aside, it's time to act. So, you know, you, you get out of bed and you start clamoring around and then you, you know how you're doing all the things like, well, let's, let's get you to the right place here and wait, I don't know if I want to touch you yet. And how big, how bad is this? What, what am I in for? And this the whole moment is the shalom had been vandalized. Um, and I'm sorry if we have any sympathetic pukers in here. I don't mean to get you going. But, but such is the nature of sin. 
It is a vandalism of shalom. It is an invasion into the way things ought to be. It may be alluring, but it's a lie. And about sin, the Puritan John Owen has said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And what I, one of the, what I want to resurrect out of this passage this morning of these opening verses here is that we want to pursue holiness. We want to pursue holiness, not just because others will think well of us, because it's respectable, not with begrudging obedience, not with awkwardness, not with disdain, not with frustration, but for the inherent beauty and goodness of a holy life. Holiness is desirable. It's what we've been made for. Holiness is a description of life as it was meant to be. And the pursuit of holiness is a pursuit of life that is truly life. And so here at the beginning, we see that we have been sanctified, that as we've been set apart, this is our status with God in Christ Jesus. And we've been called to be holy, which is no bad thing. And it's rather an invitation to joy and goodness and participation in the way life was meant to work. Sin is always less than. And holiness is always home where we belong. And Paul goes on from there to remind the believers and us through them, not only of our status and our calling, but he reminds us that these things are the result of the grace of God. We are beneficiaries of the grace of God. Look at verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. I hope you notice something. We talk about this all the time. Repetition is our volume knob. What do you see repeated in this passage over and over and over and over again? The person of Jesus Christ. All of this, this status, this calling, this life in front of us, all of these things are because of Jesus. They're because of these things. And again, we have to remember, along with Paul's audience here, that this is a matter of grace, what we have been called to. This was particularly a community. The Corinthians were a community that were steeped in pride and arrogance. They were ostentatious in their dress. They were self-reliant in their pursuits. This was a community of self-made men and women. They trusted in their resources. They trusted in their wealth or the patronage of others. They thought themselves wise and sophisticated. In other words, there was a lot of selfish Sinful self-centeredness in this church. And Paul sees the importance of reminding them that they are beneficiaries of the grace of God. And I think something that we need to appreciate in this is the reminder. We need to understand that God wasn't obligated to save us. We might think that sin forced his hand, but he didn't have to do any such thing. He quite simply could have left us to our own devices. I don't think anybody has said it more poignantly than Jerry Bridges when he said that everything this side of hell is grace. And so as Paul looks at this church struggling with arrogance and immorality, he wants to remind them of the grace of God that they've received. That their position in Christ is a matter of God's grace. Uh, I was thinking of an example. I was trying to think of when was, Eric, when was the time that you you received uh, some of the most grace from somebody. And uh, oh, a lot of examples came to mind, but one that I'll share with you goes back 20 years. 
Uh, 20 years ago, I had uh, flown up to Yakima, Washington to serve as a youth intern uh, at uh, Amy's church, and uh, we were just dating at the time, getting to know each other, but I was flying home back to Los Angeles to continue my schooling there, and um, uh, so I had bought a ticket uh, for, my, for my summer season of, of work and ministry, and so it kind of was a funny ticket where I arrived, I think, June 10th, and I left August 10th or something like that, and that was the length of the of the trip, and so this was back in the day too, by the way, when you had a ticket, you know, they like, you went to a travel agent, and they gave you a paper thing, and anyways, that's what I had, and and uh, so on the day that it was time for me to leave, I was dropped off at the airport, and I went up to the counter, and I handed my ticket across to the, the person helping me there, and the woman said, I'm sorry, Mr. Johns, I don't find you on this flight, I don't see that you have a seat here, and I'm thinking, well, I don't understand, I have a ticket, you know, <laughs> here it is, and and she looks at it and she gives me some bad news. And she says, oh, well, Mr. Johns, you've missed your flight. Um, you've missed your flight by a month. <laughs> it was scheduled July 10th. And somehow in the booking process, I was supposed to arrive on June 10th and leave August 10th. And, and somehow in the purchasing process, it became June 10th and July 10th. And so I showed up my fl- for my flight on time and ready to go on August 10th. And she's looking at me and saying, you're a month late for your flight. Anybody else been a month late for your flight? Do I have the record? And so I donned my dumb face, which I'm good at. And I'm just like, uh, I don't know what to do, you know. And I'm just a young, poor college kid. And I don't have any credit cards. I don't, like, I don't have a way out of this. I'm just standing at the airport, needing to get home, thinking, help me. <laughs> and she did. And I don't, I don't know what happened. I don't know how it occurred. Uh, all I know is that I left the counter, and I had a seat on that plane. And I would say that was purely by grace, because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And she kindly gave me what I did not deserve. And that is exactly what God has done for us. He has kindly given us in Christ Jesus what we do not deserve. I think Brendan Manning has said it so well. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am a sinner saved by grace and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. So I think the importance of this point, recognizing that we are beneficiaries of the grace of God, it tells us two things here we really need to resist that arrogance which so easily wells up in us, especially those of us who have been Christians a long time. It becomes easy to pat ourselves on the back or to think that, yeah, we really did the right things. We need to resist the sense of self-righteousness as though somehow it was a matter of our deserving. Our salvation and our standing with Christ is purely a result of his grace. So we see here the goodness of belonging to God has been shown in the status that we have been given in Christ Jesus. We've been sanctified. And the goodness of belonging to God is shown in the life that we've been called to live, a life of holiness. That's a good thing we've been called to that. And the goodness of belonging to God is also shown in that we didn't deserve any of these things. They are by God's grace given for us. And then Paul goes on to specify some aspects of grace that we have received. Look at verse 5. For in him... You have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. 
And the simple truth here is this. We have been given all we need. We are not in short supply or resource. We are not ill-equipped for the life that we've been called to. We have, in fact, been empowered to live out our calling of holiness until Christ returns. I'm just getting back from hunting, so of course all of my illustrations are going to be from hunting for a while here. And just be grateful I didn't get anything, because then you'd see pictures. But um, I think one of the things that uh, men in particular love about hunting uh, is having the right gear. Can I say this? Um, Having the right gear for the occasion, I think, for most guys, really brings sort of its own special reward as you're out hunting. Uh, You know, if you do the research and you buy an expensive pair of boots and they fit good and they hold up well and they protect your ankles and you step in the stream and they really are waterproof like they promised and you're able to hike in them and they keep you warm and you kind of go through the whole hunt and, and they performed as you had hoped that they would, you go, yeah, that was great. Uh, this last year, I did a lot more hiking than I typically do. And, you know, the way you, you dress for that, you've got layers. You've got a, a you know, next to skin layer that, it, that not only keeps you a little bit warm, but mostly keeps you dry and wicks away moisture. And then you've got your next layer of insulation. And then you've got an outer layer that protects you from wind and from rain and snow, as in the case that I experienced. And, and it's nice that when you're hiking, you can shed some things. And then when and then when the weather comes, you can reach into your bag and pull out just that perfect thing and put it on. And it's nice when you pull your binoculars up, even in the rain and the cold and the snow, and they're not foggy and they're not, you know, waterlogged. And when things work as they should and you have all of this good equipment, it's very satisfying. Am I right? Am I only, only one that feels this way, guys? And you, you, I know, I know this. Uh, there's the old, you know, saying, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear, Right? I think for most men, there's this something very satisfying to having the right piece of equipment for the challenge. And God tells us that in spiritual, our spiritual lives, we have just that. We have been outfitted and resourced and equipped and geared up in every way for the life that we've been called to. Uh, and I think one of the critical factors to recognize here is this. This is something that's easily missed. This is a corporate reality, not an individual reality. The reality that we, the church, have been resourced in every way, not me as an individual. And so in your notes, it's this way. This is a we, not I thing. We are too tempted to read our Bibles with an individual mindset uh, and don't read them as corporately as, as they were intended, the passages were intended. But to be adequately equipped for a life of holiness, we have to live interdependently with the whole family of God. Because none of us has all of the gifts, but together we have every resource, every spiritual gift given necessary for the lives that we have been called to. In other words, full access to all of the resources, all of the gifts that God has given, requires participation in community. In other words, this is only true in that it is true communally. The Bible knows nothing of solitary, individualistic, self-reliant faith. The Christian faith is inherently communal. Uh, It is true that we all possess the image of God. The image of God is in us, but it is marred in us. 
even after reconciliation to God, it is still marred in us. And we need the collective body of Christ in order for the composite image of God to be formed in us. Have you ever seen those pictures? You know, there's a picture of something, I don't, I don't know, say a, a person or something, but really the picture of that person is formed from a, like a million other little tiny pictures of people and somehow computer generated, it's arranged and it, that picture comes forward. I've always thought that that would be a very good um, picture of the body of Christ. That somehow we would see an image of Christ, but what would be behind it would be all of the people of God. That only in totality do we reflect the true image of Christ. I, I, although I don't think we should necessarily have images of Christ around here, but you get the concept, you get the point. Um, God has distributed the gifts diversely among the body of Christ to make us interdependent upon one another, not self-reliant. Um, Let me say it one other way. You will never realize the holy life you've been called to if you do not commit yourself to Christian community. And so I would say to that, you had better find find your community, whether it's a formal small group or an informal small group, whether it's people from within this church or whether it's people within the broader church of God. You need a community in your life. Uh, Find it. You need it, and other people need you. There's another important truth here that I think we need to remind ourselves. We need to keep telling this to ourselves, that I can't walk this out on my own. I need people. And I experienced this a few years ago when um, I was really heavily burdened by some things in my own personal life and ministry, and and on top of that burden, which was already very, very heavy for me, um, I received some just devastating news uh, about a friend of mine and uh, trying to walk through some, some hard things uh, with him and his family. And, uh, and then within a couple of days, I received word again uh, that somebody else that I knew and cared for it had committed suicide. And I felt a little bit like Job, you know, where things sort of came in the waves. And, um, and I was at my weakest point, personally and spiritually, in my entire life. I would say to you that my spiritual legs buckled. And I remember going, I remember right where I was and exactly what I said. I was in my office and Pastor Keith came in. And in a moment of absolute spiritual fatigue, I told him, I remember my words. I said, Keith, I don't think I have the strength to make it. And he looked back at me, and I'll never forget his words. And he says, you're probably right. You don't but we do. And that's, that's the truth I needed to hear. If I'm trying to stand on my own two feet in every circumstance, in every blow, in every difficulty, I don't have the strength, and you don't either. But we do. Because God has apportioned the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the body of Christ. We stand as a body. We stand together. It says this in 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We have that together. And so there will be times in our lives when it seems like there is an insurmountable wall. Uh, the loss is too great. The question's too hard. The obstacle's too challenging, and we have to remind ourselves in that moment, or we need a brother or sister to remind us in that moment 
that every resource for persevering in Christ is given to the body of Christ. And I would say this too. You've heard me say this before. Next to the Holy Spirit, you're the most important preacher in your own life. Do you know that? It's certainly not me and it's nobody you can dial up on the radio. You're the most important preacher in your own life as long as what you're proclaiming is from the word of God. Uh, Jerry Bridges has a good caveat to that. Don't trust yourself to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the word. (laughs) But assuming you're in the word and you're proclaiming it, you need to proclaim it to yourself. The Holy Spirit is the most important proclaimer in your life and you're you're next in line. You need to remind yourself of those things which are true from God's word. Let's move on and look at verse 8. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord. So the fourth point this morning is this. He will keep us strong to the end. And you all know by, by now very well my practice of I give you an outline. It's just a guide. It's just a help. And I, I try to underline a word that I'm trying to give some uh, emphasis to, and I, uh, and some of you cheat, you know, as we go along looking for the, you look in the back and you pick up the point coming up or you try to guess, and I'm on to you, I, I know what you're doing, that's all right, as long as you're tracking. But I came to this point, I kept looking at it and I thought, I don't know which word to underline. Which word do I give emphasis to here? Um, you can underline the first word, he. He will keep us strong to the end. Yes, that's true. It's the agency of God that does this. We don't trust and rely on ourselves, but we know that God absolutely will carry us to the end. He will do this. We could underline the second word. He will do this. There is no doubt. There's no question. Our God is faithful. He will do this. He will do this. We could underline the next word. He will keep us. This is an ongoing sustenance of God. It will continue. It will persist. It will not stop. He will keep us strong to the end. The word here, firm or strong, that is he will sustain us. He will confirm us to make sure, to establish. This is a building word. This is a shore up, brace, to make sure, to secure. We could emphasize that or the last word he will keep us strong to the end we won't run this race part way we'll run through the tape because God will carry us there we will finish if we are his we are his to the end and we will finish with him the goodness of belonging to God is the assurance that he will keep us firm to the end and I would say Christian underline whatever word you need to hear this morning, whatever point of emphasis that God would impress upon you. Um, The hope presented to this struggling church here in Sin City, Corinth, uh, is available for us struggling sinners today, and that is this. One day, we will be blameless. One of our habits, uh, our practices as elders here at the church, we meet on the second and the fourth Thursday of the month. And one of the things that we do uh, at the beginning of each meeting is we read the qualifications of an elder in First Timothy and Titus and sometimes the passage in First uh, Peter chapter 5 as well. And we, we read that. And you want to talk about the most sobering moment of the evening. It's right there, typically. It's right there. 
And one of the things that we, one of the words that we read when we go through these qualifications is this word blameless. And over the years, it has prompted a lot of conversation among us where we look at one another and we say, blameless. Anybody got that? <laughs> what does this mean? And, and of course, the reality is it's not that we're perfect. It's that none of, there, there is no prevailing character trait against us. Uh, that would cause disreputation for the for Christ. So with that sobering reality and that context in the back of my mind and the way some of the most godly men that I know are sobered by that when we read it, how much more encouraged I am when I read this that one day we will all be blameless. Blameless. No accusation. Nothing can stick as everything has been paid for in Christ. He goes on to assure us how we can believe this, how we can hold this, because it was he that called you, and he is faithful. Once again, this is not on me. This is not on you. This is not another burden to carry. This is a burden carried in Christ. And the A.W. Tozer has said it better than anybody else. Trust me. <laughs> Listen to these words. How unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us since he knew us before we knew him. And called us to himself in full knowledge of everything that was against us. We stand secure in Christ. Because he knew us before he even called us. He knew every chapter of your story. And he still made you his. Paul says this in Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this. That he who began a good work in you. Will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The goodness of belonging to God is shown to us many ways here. It's in the status that we've been given. We're sanctified. It's the life we've been called to. We've been called to a holy life. The goodness of God, the goodness of belonging to God is seen in the sheer grace that we have received from him. The goodness of belonging to God is shown in that we have been equipped in every way as a body for living out the life we've been called to. And finally, the goodness of belonging to God is the assurance that he will keep us to the end. And in the end, we will be found blameless. And our confidence in this is in his performance and not ours. And I want to close with this, uh, this reading. I've got some wonderful people in my life. And uh, Bonnie Chapman is one of them. And she gave me this book years ago called Valley of Vision. And it's some prayers and devotions written by the Puritans. And I don't give enough attention to this. Um, but another important woman in my life, the most important woman in my life, my wife brought it to mind recently, and I want to read this in closing. It's, it's a little bit long, but hang with me. It's under the title of Self-Deprecation. O oh Lord, my every sense, member, faculty, affection is a snare to me. I can scarce open my eyes, but I envy those above me or despise those below. I covet honor and riches of the mighty, I am proud and unmerciful to the rags of others. If I behold beauty, it is a bait to lust. Or see deformity, it stirs up loathing and disdain. 
How soon do slanderers, vain jests, and wanton speeches creep into my heart? Am I comely? What fuel for pride? Am I deformed? What an occasion for repining. Am I gifted? I lust after applause. Am I unlearned? How I despise what I have not. Am I an authority? How prone to abuse my trust, make will my law, exclude others' enjoyments, serve my own interests and policy. Am I inferior? How much I grudge others' preeminence. Am I rich? How exalted I become. Thou knowest that all these are snares, but my corruptions and thy and that my greatest snare is myself. I bewail that my apprehensions are dull, my thoughts mean, my affections stupid, my expressions low, my life unbeseeming. Yet what canst thou expect of dust but levity, of corruption but defilement? And here it is, Bethel Church, listen. Keep me ever mindful of my natural state, but let me not forget my heavenly title or the grace that can deal with every sin. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we forget and forgive us for forgetting the goodness of belonging to you. We belong to you because of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it is good. We've been sanctified, set apart, and called to holiness, equipped for holiness, all by your grace. We have confidence that we will finish to the end and be blameless, not because we're faithful but because you are faithful. God, help us to remember these good things and help us to remember in the midst of sin and discouragement that we are yours from the first to the last. We are yours. We want to recall and remember our heavenly title in Christ Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen.